Colossians 2, 6 to 15. So you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Continue to live your lives in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him, also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism. You were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Last Monday, I received an email from an area pastor. It was addressed to not only me, but other pastors in the area. Here's what it said. It said Hello, pastors. I had a lady from my church drop off this paper to me today. thought you all should be aware of it. In Bourbon, there is a satanic gathering scheduled. It's my understanding that they want to make this house a rallying point for this part of the state. Just something for your prayers. And attached to the email was this image of a flyer. And the flyer features a couple of semi-formally dressed skeletons and advertises the event as a metaphysical and artisan market. In addition to art booths, an open mic, uh, and a drumming circle, it listed psychic and tarot readings, as well as Reiki massage, that's that massage where there's actually no physical contact, and something called past life regression. Now I must confess I have never been to Bourbon. I have no idea why Satan would see it as strategic for overall operations in this part of the state. It just seems like a nice little Indiana town. Anyway, I responded to the email by suggesting we show a little caution before slapping people with the Satanist label. And in response to that, someone asked, why? Well, leave aside for a minute uh, that the flyer made no mention of Satan. And I poked around the internet and discovered that none of the vendors at the event identify as Satanists. I will grant that they may keep that part secret uh, for marketing reasons. But if that's the case, one vendor certainly wears and sells a lot of brightly colored tie-dye, given that they're supposedly aligned with the Prince of Darkness. But I think the real reason it goes back to when I was in high school. I came across a pamphlet uh, claiming that Procter & Gamble was satanic. It said that satanic messages were encoded in its logo and other symbols and uh, printed on its packaging. Alarmed, 
when I brought it to my religion teacher, who I loved, and he looked at it and said, wait, I think they make my toothpaste. Are my teeth black? Well, you see, it was the 80s, the era of the satanic panic. And that guy, Mike Warnke, traveled the country describing his conversion from uh, being a satanic high priest, a drug dealer, to a Christian and an evangelist. It was when Geraldo aired a special, a special about the satanic underground. And it was when people discovered secret messages playing records backwards. And there's talk of selling kids selling their soul to the devil while playing Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, and it was also when uh, people would go under hypnosis and remember repressed memories of being uh, an un willing participant in some occult ritual. Well, none of it was true. You know, at the time when my teacher made that joke, it was funny, but I also felt a little silly having been taken in by this pamphlet. And not only uh, did I feel silly, I was also disappointed. I mean, let's face it, the idea was kind of exciting. The idea that there was this clear enemy. That those opposed to God, opposed to what is good, openly identifying themselves as such. The truth is, though, that villains motivated to do evil for evil's sake, out of a, you know, out of their, just out of a devotion to evil, those type of people appear almost exclusively in comic books and movies. Real villains tend to think of themselves as heroes. Now, that does not excuse us from having to fight on behalf of goodness. The fact that the lines between good and evil tend to blur doesn't just sort of let us off the hook, let us just shrug our shoulders. After all, this passage is about, about baptism. And baptism symbolizes a uh, a change of allegiance. We pledge our allegiance first and foremost to the kingdom of God and to the cause of its king. Now, in our passage, uh, Paul presents the work of Christ in, in sort of military terms. He says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Uh, it's an image that Paul will develop in other letters as well. Uh, it's about a triumphal entry. Now, typically, when we think of triumphal entry, we think in terms of Palm Sunday, which was, of course, a triumphal entry. But, however, at this time in history, that sort of event, a triumphal entry, was a much bigger, typically a much bigger production. Uh, and it concluded with the entrance of the, the conquering general. There's all the stuff that came before. Uh, it would begin with the captives, uh, the various military and political leaders of the opposing nation were marched into the city, sometimes with their families, and they were chained hand and foot. Uh, then that would be followed by uh, their weaponry, right? Now in the possession of the victors, it would be carted down the streets after them. So uh, it was not just about defeating the enemy. 
The procession was an opportunity to, to, to humiliate them, to flaunt how helpless they were, how doomed they were. So with that in mind, listen again to what Paul says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them triumphing over them in it. So like a conquering general on a triumphal procession, Jesus has disarmed the enemy and put them on public display. Well, who are these rulers and authorities that Paul refers to? And there is some debate on that point. It's not a reference to historical rulers and authorities. Uh, like in Ephesians, Paul insists that this battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers or rulers and authorities. Many, uh, so many see this, okay, Paul is talking about the demonic realm. Uh, that's one possibility. Others argue that what Paul's referencing here are uh, social structures and institutions to systems of oppression and injustice. I, I, some people take issue with that interpretation because in their minds, that sounds like an effort to downplay the reality of evil and minimize it. Uh, it's an attempt to uh, reduce a theological category to a mere sociological one. I suspect that people who feel that way are people who have not, for example, been sentenced to life in prison for a crime they didn't commit. Um, they never had, they've never experienced how the system can grind you up and spit you out. I mean, think about somebody like that uh, Greta, Greta Thornburg or those students from Parkland. You know, they see these massive injustices, these, ma these wrongs, that, and they say, we have got to do something. And we all agree, yes, something has to be done. We can't allow another kid to be shot down in school. We cannot be the last generation to know Earth as a habitable planet. But the system, the system just grinds on. You know, it grinds out all the momentum from those movements. And very little gets done. To say that Jesus does battle with the systems, with the forces that grind down and grind out efforts at the good, is not to downplay the power and the threat of evil. Again, to say otherwise is to downplay just how powerful those systems can be. To take systems of oppression seriously is not to say our problems are merely political or economic or sociological. It is those things and more. It's spiritual. Maybe you watched the hearings this week. Uh, and if you, if you have been, the story that's unfolding in those hearings is a story about individuals and individual choices, but it's also story about systems. I mean, initially, the Trump administration sought to determine a different outcome to the election within the system. They appealed to the election officials, to state and local governments. They appealed to the courts. None of that worked. They had no way within the systems 
within the system itself to secure the outcome they sought. So they convinced people that their opponents had violated the system, had rigged it against them, that, uh, that had the system worked, they would have had the outcome they wanted. Well, what was to be done now? Well, overthrow the system. And how do you do that? Through violence. Violence is both how the system is overturned and it's how a system is maintained. Mao Zedong said, political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. In other words, the only way to change a system, the only way to uh, maintain a system is through violence or the threat of violence. We see this uh, in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus was very much a threat to the system, to the religious system, to the political system. He was determined to bring a whole new order. And evidence of how he's a threat is found in the, th the sorts of accusations that are made of him. For example, he eats with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, right? He it's his refusal to reject those whom the system has said need to be rejected. That is a threat, right? That's a rejection of the system. He's not going to see people the way the system demands he see them, sees them. Um, and so in response, they try to disarm Jesus. Uh, and they try to disarm, first of all, through the system uh, by asking they try to trip him up with uh, theological questions, these trick questions, but he keeps answering them in ways that turn the tables and they end up looking dumb. So they've they feel they've exhausted their, the ways of dealing with Jesus within the system. Right? And so then they need to use violence. You know, a system, you know, uh, Mao Zedong talked about uh, power, political power growing out of a barrel of a gun. Well, political power can be, is maintained in that world by, by the crosses you plant in a hill, on a hill. Crucifixion protects systems. It's part of your arsenal. You arm yourselves with the ability to wound, to humiliate, and to kill. Eventually, this, you know, this arsenal is turned against Jesus. He is wounded. He is stripped naked and put on public display. He dies a grueling death. And it seems as though this system has ground out another one. But then there's the resurrection. And the resurrection is not just Jesus squeaking out a victory. Resurrection is an utter and complete victory. He not only lives, he lives eternally. The weapons take no life out of him. In fact, he emerges with so much life, he has life to spare. In fact, enough that all things will be made new. He is not humiliated, he is glorified. So much glory that all things will share in his glory. In him, the system is made is, is taken captive it's disarmed 
Its weapons are neutralized. They become worthless. Now, I realize I'm saying nothing here that I haven't said before in some way, form or another. In fact, I've probably, probably say something along these lines four Sundays out of five. But I suppose if there's anything that needs restating four Sundays out of five, if not six Sundays out of five, it is that, that we gather here to place ourselves along that parade route to bear witness on this day so that we don't forget for the next six days. And it is so easy to forget. It is so easy to go from celebrant of this triumphal entry to a POW in the enemy camp. See to it, says Paul. No one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Philosophy. Now, we tend to think of philosophy as a sort of academic discipline, one where you smoke a pipe and talk about the social construction of reality. Well, Paul has that sort of talk in mind and much more. Philosophy just refers to a way of understanding the world and your place in it. It's how you interpret experience and act in response to your experience. It's not just a, it's not just an intellectual pursuit. It's an emotional investment. How you think about things after long deliberation and how you react to things on an impulse all make up part of a philosophy. And I think at a certain point, most people realize that we have a, a philosophy with some basic responses to the world, some default moves. And a lot of things pl have played into the formation of those basic moves. Some might be genetics. Uh, certainly how we are raised has a lot to do with books that we read may inform how we uh, see the world. And I think one of the most important influences in how we form our philosophy are the ways we've been wounded. Our default moves were likely formed in an effort to keep that from happening again. And these uh, moves that are formed by our, in response to having been wounded, they may be they may be effective. They may keep us from ha being re-wounded along those same lines. The problem is, is that the world is a very complicated place. And while our basic philosophy, our default moves, um, have served us well, there are also times when operating according to that same philosophy simply perpetuates our problems gets us into trouble. You know, there are times where some other response is called for and because we're so stuck within our basic philosophy, we don't see it. Or maybe you can see it and you just can't respond differently than the way you've always responded. Um, in other words, it's your philosophy is, is not just this aren't just these default moves. Your philosophy is this rut you're stuck within. You're a prisoner by it. You don't know how to, to overcome it. 
You know, when we are confronted by a broken system, large or small, you say, for example, you say your default move is that you try to smooth things over, try to make peace, try to demonstrate patience. Those are great moves. They are virtues. Sometimes. There are also times when you think what you're doing is trying to make peace, when you think you're demonstrating uh, patience, there are times when actually all you're doing is being a pushover. All you're doing is being passive. Now, others of us have other defaults. You may be the type of person who takes a stand, who demands change. And that takes some guts to do that kind of thing. And, and to be sure, courage and assertiveness are also virtues. They are great moves. And there, there are times when that is exactly what the situation calls for. But there are also times when those same default moves kind of make you a jerk, kind of make you a bully. You're not just uh, being assertive, you're being aggressive. What's amazing is that even when our default moves aren't working, and, and when I say not working, I mean, they're not only are they not fixing the problem, they're amplifying the problem. It's amazing how often we still stick with them. We're still convinced that they will get us through. Or, or, here's what else can happen. We try, okay, fine. I will try a different move. I will try to respond differently. Uh, but you are, we, we, we can be so uncomfortable that we just, with trying to move, we do it terribly. You know, because we're operating as such anxiety. We, we, all we do is prove why we never go that route. So this is one reason why Paul emphasizes over and over again the need to be rooted and established in Christ. We need to again and again stand along the parade route every day, taking some time to put ourselves there. Do it every day and especially on those days, on those days you feel a little ground up by the system. You know, you park yourself along that parade route and watch as the, 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 the powers and authorities Watch as all those various systems walk past, chained and defeated. You know, and then see their weapons rolling past, no longer wielded against you, but piled up in a cart, useless, unable to do a thing to you. And then, then we need to again see the one who conquered. The one who conquered armed with love, riding in triumph. And when we see him there, we need to see that his wounds remain. These, those wounds testify to the power of evil. They testify that you are right in finding the systems threatening. They, do ter they can do terrible things. They have the power to grind us down. That is real. It's not about downplaying any of that. Jesus has wounds. Those wounds are healed. 
And so when we see them, not only do we see the power of the systems, we see that his power is greater. He is greater. We need to see that. We need to see him, the conqueror. But even more than we need to see him, we need to know he sees us, that this victory was for us. The love which he, through which he disarmed the powers is a love for you. When we see that, and when we are, when we are seen, it's at that point you can approach your own struggles, not as a POW of the system, but as free as one whose ultimate victory is already secured. You may still struggle to know what's required of you and struggle when you are trying to learn new moves, but you can do it breathing a little easier, a little more deeply, because you already know how all this will end.